the uniqueness of the Bible. Why do we take the time to read it on the radio? Why is this book worthy of this kind of attention, not only here in South Texas, but all across America? Well, let's talk about that for a moment, how this Bible is alone. I'm quoting here Professor Montiero Williams, professor of Sanskrit, 42 years studying Eastern books from Hinduism, from Buddhism. He wrote about the Bible. Pile them, if you will, on the left side of your study table. But place your own holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone, and with a very wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between the Bible and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever. A veritable gulf which cannot be bridged over by any science of religious thought. My second son, Sean, recently purchased a copy of the Koran and has been reading it. I read the Koran when I was in high school. You can read other books, Book of Mormon, for example, other books that claim to have some supernatural source, some supernatural involvement in their writing. Read them and you will find a world of difference between them and the Bible. Even in the tone of the book, you will find that there is a world of difference. Now, this professor had something more in mind than just the tone of the book, but his evaluation there after 42 years of study is that there is something very unique about the Bible. Let me start out with the idea of this. The Bible is unique in its continuity. Here is a book written over a period of about 1,500 years, 40 generations of people, written by over 40 different authors from every walk of life, kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, and on and on, different individuals, not only different walks of life, but different personalities and personal experiences that they had. Moses, who was a political leader, trained in the universities of Egypt. You have Peter, a fisherman, Amos, a herdsman, a farmer, Joshua, a military general, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He was a civil servant to one of the great emperors of the Persian Empire, Artaxerxes. Daniel, Daniel was taken from his country as a young teenager, taken over into the Persian Empire, where he rose to greatness through a series of different events and by the force of his own skill, his own talent, his own intelligence. And, of course, we believe as we read his story, by the very hand of God, Daniel rose to become the prime minister of the great Persian and Medo-Persian empires, ruling basically over nations and empires during the time of four or five different world emperors. There was Dr. Luke in the New Testament, a doctor, Solomon, son of a king and a king in his own right a king himself. Matthew, a lowly tax collector for the Roman Empire, marginalized and cast aside in his own culture, the Jewish society of his era, the first century. We all know the story of Paul. He was a rabbi, a Pharisee of Pharisees, rabidly against the gospel, an enemy of Jesus and the message of his being the Messiah, yet converted and became the great missionary of the first century. All these different individuals, all these different generations, all these time span, different places, Moses in the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote his book from a dungeon. Daniel wrote on a hillside and in a palace. Paul wrote from inside prison walls. Luke wrote while he was traveling in mission journeys with the Apostle Paul. John wrote on the Isle of Patmos while he was in exile there others in the rigors of military campaigns. These books were written in times of war. David, for example, the great warrior king, wrote in times of war. Solomon wrote his books in times of peace and tranquility and prosperity. There were different moods. If you read the Psalms and the Proverbs, some of them were written from the heights of joy, while others were writing from the depths of sorrow and despair and failure and having been manipulated and deceived. All of these different backgrounds. Recently married, older, younger. They were written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, and written in basically three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The subject matter of these books includes hundreds of controversial subjects. A controversial subject is one which would create opposing opinions when mentioned or discussed. Even today, you could 
take a group of people in your church or in your neighborhood or in, even in your family gatherings. You throw out a topic and you'll be in an argument almost in the time it takes to snap your finger. So many opposing opinions because of these controversial subjects. Now, the biblical authors spoke on hundreds of controversial subjects, all of the different aspects and topics that are of interest to human beings. But what we have in the Bible is a continuity, a harmony of viewpoint, of truth about these matters from Genesis to Revelation over this entire period through all of these different individuals. There is one unfolding consistent story of God's love and God's redemption of humanity. Geisler and Nix, two great professors, put it this way. The paradise loss of the Genesis becomes the paradise regained of Revelation. Whereas the gate to the tree of life is closed off in the book of Genesis, the angel stood with the uh, flaming sword so that they would not be free to be in the Garden of Eden with the tree of life, lest they eat it and live forever. We find that same tree once more in the book of Revelation. Centuries later, it is there for God's people to enjoy because we will live with God forever. This book is unique in its continuity. At first sight, it appears to be a collection of literature, mainly Jewish. But if we inquire into the circumstance under which the various biblical documents were written, we begin to see that harmony, that unity, that view of our lives, of our earthly reality, and of the true and living God, the creator of the universe. There is such a thing as a consistent, coherent, biblical worldview. In other words, it makes sense of the world we live in. It makes sense of human experience through the ages as no other book does. And that's why we believe this book is worthy of our interest and worthy of being read on the radio. The Bible is unique in its continuity. The Bible is unique in its circulation. The Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book in all of history, in all the world. There have been more copies produced of the Bible in its entirety, more portions of the Bible, selections of the Bible than any other book in history. There is absolutely no book that reaches or even begins to compare to the circulation of the Bible. The first major book ever printed was the Latin Vulgate copy printed on Gutenberg's printing press back in the middle 1400s, I believe. For the British and Foreign Bible Society to meet the demands that it had, the orders for Bibles that they had 40 years ago, they had to copy one copy of the Bible every three seconds, day and night. 22 copies every minute, day and night. 1,369 copies every hour, day and night, every hour. Now in our world with DVDs and with the Internet, it's incredible the access there is to this book. One of the first books to be put on the Internet. It doesn't prove the Bible is the Word of God. But it does help us to understand factually that the Bible is unique. No other book has ever known anything approaching its constant circulation from generation to generation. Now, it is also unique in its translation. One of the first major books translated, the Septuagint, that was translated from Hebrew to Greek for the library there in Alexandria. Septuagint, 70 scholars who helped translate the book from Hebrew to Greek somewhere around 250 years before Christ. The Bible has been translated, retranslated, paraphrased more than any other book in existence. By 1966, this is way behind, the whole Bible had appeared in 240 languages and dialects. Today, that number would be so many hundreds. I had the privilege of watching the progress of the Bible as it was first translated to Mongolian. 
having gone to Mongolia three times in the early 90s. In 89, so many of the former Soviet republics then opened up and became free. Mongolia was one of those countries that had fallen under the influence of the communist empire, both from the Russians and from the side of the Red Chinese. I had been praying for Mongolia for many years because as a Native American, it is said that we descended from the Mongolian people and came down from Russia over into Alaska and populated North America. That's at least what is said by some who trace these things. So from the time of the 70s, I had been praying for Mongolia. Now, I had made my interest known to Campus Crusade for Christ and to a number of different ministries that were trying to minister in those particular regions. They knew of my interest in Mongolia, and so when the door was opened, they asked me, would you like to be among the first to take the gospel into Mongolia? So I took my white buckskins from my Native American clothing, and I went over with my guitar, and we had a good time sharing the message of the gospel, Ulaanbaatar and other cities, and we helped send the Jesus film in Mongolian across the desert to a hundred different cities in a matter of two to three weeks. It was an astounding opportunity and experience. But I got to see the Bible first translated to Mongolian. All they had is the Bible to that point in Russian. And I got to see the impact of the Old Testament first translated into Mongolian and the people hearing the redemptive plan and the redemptive story from the Bible about the creation of man, man's fall into sin and God's judgment upon man and the condemnation of sin, the soul that sins, it shall die, the seriousness of wickedness, selfishness and sin, and then God's redemptive plan as he began to work it out there in the book of Genesis, promising that redemption would be purchased through a man. Although he would be wounded, he would crush the head of Satan and destroy destroy the work of Satan in deceiving man into losing that oneness and that unity and that relationship with God. A redeemer would come from the human race, a man. And then, of course, the whole Old Testament is about this plan of redemption, how God brings it together. As the human race grows, so the light of God's revelation also expands. So I got to see a people receive the gospel. I met the first modern Christian, the first convert of the modern era there in Mongolia. He was a hunting guide, by the way. I used to know his name, but it's so hard to pronounce even when you know it that I have forgotten it. Now there are hundreds of churches across the nation, thousands of believers, and the gospel has impacted that nation by this book. Unique in its translation to all of these different dialects and languages around the planet Earth. No other book has that experience. It's unique, one of a kind, in its translation. The Bible is also unique in its survival. The Bible has had many enemies. One of the great enemies of the Bible has been time and air itself. The Bible is written on material that perishes. So it has to be copied and recopied for hundreds of years, but that did not diminish its style, its correctness, or existence. The Bible survived intact. The writing and the rewriting tomorrow night, we'll talk about the process by which the Bible came to us, those copiers. They weren't just willy-nilly people who decided to write the Bible down. This was a lifelong commitment and passion. Letters were counted. Great care was taken. John Warwick Montgomery, who was one of the great professors and biblical scholars and experts of the last century, says that to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books, he's talking about the New Testament now, is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically, and that means in the sense of history, as the New Testament. Bernard Ram, another great authority on biblical manuscripts, says that Jews preserved the Bible as no other manuscript has ever been preserved with their Masora, the Masoretic text. These were men and women committed to in a passion for every word. They kept tabs on every letter, a syllable, every paragraph of the Bible. They had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with practically perfect fidelity. Scribes, lawyers, the Masorites, 
Whoever counted the letters and syllables and words of Plato or Aristotle, Cicero or Seneca? The role of the historian has certainly been denigrated in our time, and partially it's because of this underlying modern idea that we despair of ever finding and discovering truth. Truth is real. There is truth. Just as there are physical laws that are true, that do apply consistently, universally to the world in which we live, there are spiritual laws. There are laws of sociology. There are laws that govern the human experience and guide us. And those laws are laid out so very clearly in this book. Not only is it physically survived the, the rotting of paper and scrolls that would deteriorate, it also has survived through persecution. The Bible has withstood vicious attacks as no other book. Many have tried to burn it. They've outlawed it from the days of the Roman emperors to present-day communist-dominated countries. Back in the 1700s, Voltaire was a noted, famous French atheist who died in 1778. And he declared for sure, he predicted and prophesied that in 100 years from his time in which he lived, Christianity would be swept away from existence and passed into the trash bin of history. But what happened? Voltaire has passed into history, while the circulation of the Bible continues to increase in almost every part of the world. Concerning the boast of Voltaire on the extinction of Christianity and the Bible in a hundred years, what an irony it was that only 50 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society in Europe used his press and his own house to produce hundreds and thousands of Bibles in huge stacks. So many stories like this could be told of the persecution of the Bible through the centuries. Back in the 300s, 303 A.D., after Christ, Diocletian issued an edict to stop Christians from worshiping and to destroy their scriptures, ordering the raising of the churches to the ground and the destruction by fire of the Bible, the scriptures. The historic irony of the edict to destroy the Bible is the edict given just 25 years later by Constantine, the emperor that followed Diocletian, that 50 copies of the scriptures should be prepared at the expense of the government. <laughs> the Bible has survived persecution. It is unique in its survival through criticism. Great intellects and great professors through the centuries have tried hard to denigrate the scriptures and disprove the Bible, yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases. It's more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. The church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers, and the anvil of God's word still endures. Surviving criticism. It's unique in its teaching. No book helps to understand the human experience like this book the Bible. It is unique in its influence on art, music, painting, storytelling, all the great stories, the really great stories that we cling to, uh, whether it's uh, Lord of the Rings or Moby Dick, the great books that we remember, all of them borrow from the great themes and truths of Scripture. God, the fallen, selfish nature of man, the life-giving power of forgiveness, all of that borrowed from this beautiful story of the Creator God who, when His creation rebelled against Him, walked away from Him and disobeyed Him. Not only was judgment and punishment pronounced, but then He loved them enough to send their Savior to make a way of redemption. The Bible is unique in every way, certainly worthy of your reading it, understanding, and getting to know the God of the Bible. Lewis Schaefer, who is a founder and former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, put it this way, The Bible is not such a book that a man would write if he could, or could write if he would. It's an astounding book. But I would say this finally, this is a book that transformed my life as an individual. I was what they used to call an uh, illegitimate child. I was born. I'd never met my birth mother or birth father. I was passed around to different families. I was saved at my birth by a 50-year-old fortune teller who found me on the streets of Albuquerque and who took me in. 
Here I was, this little Apache Indian child, drifting around on planet Earth with 7 billion other human beings. No past, no present, no father, no mother, no future. And then I came into the message of this book, and it transformed my life. I was no longer drifting alone. I was a child of the king. I was an object of God's love, God's redemptive action, and that his own son came and died on a cruel Roman cross to take the penalty of my sin. And I became a child of God, and he transformed the way I saw and understood myself. And now, 54 years later, after knowing him, I still love him and follow him, and that book still changes my life each and every day, each and every week. I hope you'll join me next time, folks, for this special series on The Bible Live. See you next time.